Welcome, friends, to the Week in Sports Cars, a weekly conversation driven by your listener Q&A about the world of IMSA, the World Endurance Championship, European Le Mans Series, World Challenge. What else comes to mind? My co-pilot and dear friend, Graham Goodwin. Good evening, everybody. Uh, Well, there's plenty going on this week, isn't there? Uh, You join us uh, from uh, this end of the microphone, at least. Uh, The uh, microphone cable pulled taut at a very wet, windy, and now very dark uh, Epsom just outside London, deep in the winter. And uh, as I start to pull together the bits and pieces that uh, compose my packing for Bahrain and what I've no doubt will be a um, busy news gathering a few days in the WEC paddock um, next weekend. Mr. Goodwin, of course, editor of DailySportsCard.com, a fine website, also a man who speaks into microphones so the world can listen, learn, and hopefully love not only FIA WEC coverage, Asian Le Mans series coverage, he's just a mighty fine professional. At the other end of the spectrum, someone who speaks into lots of microphones, just not for the series that I happen to cover, I'm Marshall Pruitt. IMSA, North American sports cars, endurance racing, kind of my thing. We put together a little show, The Week in Sports Cars. It's brought to you by Cooper Tires, who've announced, Graham, they're returning for their third season. Wonderful, Woo! fantastic stuff. Also, the Justice Brothers. Haven't announced that, but would expect and hope that that will continue as well. So, more news to follow. This is a lovely December 6th recording. I think we're going to continue on this angle for a little bit, that being end-of-week recordings that we end up posting the following Monday. So we're going to keep trying it. What should we do, Graham? Should we do our normal routine of stepping right into the various categories of series where we have received those delightful listener questions to answer? Should we shake things up a bit? Should we lob out a few things we've heard, maybe haven't written about yet, but... Ooh. Just some newsy items. I don't know. I'm, I'm in the in the mood and spirit of, I don't know, trying something a little different to start the show. Well, well, I can I can kick that one along if you like. Um, my week started in Paris with uh, friend, co-pilot, and uh, stunt double for Twisk, uh, 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 Stephen Kilby, uh, in Paris for the FI Hall of Fame, uh, inducting the FI World Endurance Champion. Uh, championship winners, uh, winning drivers into the Hall of Fame that follows on from Formula One and the WRC, the World Rally Championship, being given that honour. And 27 of the 29 names that are featured as the World Endurance Champion um, were uh, on that list. The only two missing, of course, Stefan Beloff, uh, no longer with us, but it was delightful to see his um, incredibly dignified and... Um, uh, brother Georg was there. Uh, Theo Farby, unfortunately, had a family commitment that kept him away. But the rest of the gang, starting with the now 86-year-old um, Bob Garretson and coming all the way up to date with some Spanish guy that's won two Hall of Fame places now, that being Fernando Alonso. Everyone else is there. Lots of gossip, lots going on. Uh, it will include, by the way, uh, some stories we'll be bringing you I think possibly over the weekend, maybe early next week, um, about some confirmed drivers for next year in the first season of Hypercar. Uh, I can bring that, that, certainly that to you. Lots of gossip about other programs that might be about. And there was, at least then, 
um, the uh, the revelation from Kaleem Boudra from Rebellion Racing, what we now know to be the case, I know we got questions about it later, MP, and this tie-in between Rebellion and Peugeot. Yes, and I was actually meant to speak with Kaleem, but he's undergoing shoulder surgery right now. So Is he? going to reach out yeah, and connect with one of his sergeants at arms. And uh, yeah, anyways, looking forward to learning a lot more about that program, maybe even in podcast form. Trying to think, what else can I mention that we maybe haven't discussed on the show or written about? But you know, we're trying to let some birds fly here early. Why not? Uh, I'm beginning to care less and less about holding on to such things. Uh, what I have it on pretty good account that our pals Christina Nielsen and Catherine Leg will be part of this new all-female Lamborghini Huracan GTD program and IMSA with the uh, fine Grasser folks will have a teammate i don't know the full lineup in, in that second car but i've heard that the assets of the magnus racing team are headed to the grasser shop in florida that being the lamborghini huracan gt3 that john potter team owner and driver of the magnus entry piloted last year with andy lally so Look forward to learning more about that, hearing more about that. Have that on pretty darn good account. So I think it's more than just rumor and speculation. But yeah, so it sounds like we're going to have a two-car Grasser program. Don't know if it's going to be a co-entered thing, Grasser slash Magnus. Wouldn't surprise me if it was, though, but that's good to hear. Unfortunately, they had to let some crew members go when the Magnus team is a standalone entry ramped down, but nonetheless... Happy to hear that that vehicle is not going away altogether. And if it means a two-car grasser full-time entry, if it means whatever, as long as we have cars and GTD and one of the familiar and popular names and John Potter and Magnus continuing in whatever capacity, that makes me happy. Well, beyond that, I think there's another bit of a uh, congratulations to you for another bit of a scoop you got, uh, well, some some weeks ago now. It feels like a couple of weeks ago, the Heart of Racing Aston Martin program now been revealed. Uh, there is, of course, still uh, still news to come of who's going to be driving that for the full season. But I think certainly for the racing debut of that car, uh, this is the first appearance of the new turbo v8 engine aston martin vantage gtd of course uh, i think you're certainly going to see at least one aston martin factory driver aboard the vehicle uh, beyond that uh, there's still news to come on the lmp2 class for imsa uh, at rolex 24 and beyond with one team announcement certainly to come further details to come from another we've now seen the era motorsports uh, chassis has been uh, delivered to the united states and is testing they've still got to confirm exactly what their full season program is as we wrote some time ago mp i expect that to be confirmed as a full season in lmp2 beyond uh, just an appearance at the rolex 24 I love it. All right. Well, let's jump into what we normally do. Q&A and you as the official selector of the categories. Where shall we start first, my friend? 
I think this week, with with apologies to those that uh, hold other series dear, the one that uh, just screams out as being the one that's been grabbing the headlines seemingly at an hourly basis is the ACO, Weck Aslam's Elms and Echo, we call it. It's the ACO Rules Racing. My goodness, there have been a number of stories and big stories at that uh, hitting the inboxes and the screens this week. Let's start with that, MP. Love it. Absolutely love it. And I give you a quadruple thumbs up from across the pond here on that choice. We're going to go with P1 pole position of this week's episode. James counter James asks, why do you think the details of the Peugeot hypercar program are so scarce? And most of the announcements are coming from Twitter. Ah, right. Well, I have a little bit of intelligence on this one. It's about the only area I've got any intelligence whatsoever. But um, the answer is, it really was a surprise, uh, certainly in terms of timing and content, to just about everybody. And that did include the uh, the ACO and the WEC. Uh, Everybody was left scrambling for that. My understanding is that almost literally the board decision was taken and then the communications department at PSA, Persia Sports, um, were told to hit the button. And they did that uh, so remarkably quickly that so the first tweet that went out actually had them entering the FAI World Rallycross Championship by mistake. So the reality was it was as, um, as quick fire as it really looked. Literally nobody was ready for that. Uh, so if you were one of the first people to see Persia Sports tweets, um, popping up. You probably saw that a little bit before either Pierre Fion or even um, Gerard Nouveau. It may well be that they got a courtesy call at about the same time, but it happened pretty quickly. From there on in, of course, we've had this secondary uh, announcement that the program, which they've said will commence in 2022, more of that in a moment, that uh, it will be in collaboration with our good friends at Rebellion Racing. Uh, what they are also briefing, certainly the French media that have had a chance to sit down with the uh, brass hats at uh, Peugeot Sports, is that the, uh, they are only committing at the moment to saying they will start in 2022. It doesn't say when in 2022. That tends to indicate that they're aiming or looking for an opportunity to potentially enter some races at the end of the previous season, 2021, 2022. Two points to remember here. One is... The 2023 Le Mans 24 Hours is the centenary race. It's going to be a bit like that glorious day at Indianapolis Motor Speedway uh, uh, MP. You know, a day for the ages. A centenary race is an amazing thing. Um, We can have two of those, by the way, within pretty short order in international endurance racing because the year after will be the centenary race for the Spa 24 Hours. Um, So that's number one. It's an amazing kind of opportunity. Number two is if they are to be allowed to enter Le Mans or indeed Spa and Le Mans or indeed Sebring and Spa and Le Mans, if that race is still on the calendar uh, then, then that will require a rule change because at the moment there is not the facility within the rule set to allow one-off, two-off, three-off races in the top class. You can in other classes, but not in that class. So that would require a change. What do I think? I don't think that would be something that a heartbeat in doing. They want Persia in as quickly as they possibly can, because what we don't have right now is an embarrassment of riches in terms of major factories involved in the race. So that's where we are with that. It really was as last minute as it looked. 
Um, things are coming together quite quickly. The one remaining part of the puzzle is no mention whatsoever in the release from Persia or Rebellion about Orica as yet and any involvement in that program. Uh, that's another call to make when we hit the ground in Bahrain to find Hugh de Shonak and his merry men to find out whether or not their relationship with Rebellion survives the end of the LMP1 era and into what we now know is going to be called Le Mans Hypercar. That is the official name of the new class. And we have some questions coming here. Let's go to Doogie Davies, who says, with the new rules coming down about no privateers being allowed to build their own car in the new hypercar regulations, could we hypothesize that this is a step to introduce IMSA's DPI? into the WEC by giving privateers an outlet to build a car and compete in a class that sits under hypercar, but ahead of LMP2. Yeah, Doogie, uh, not right. And unfortunately, it's not your fault it's not right. It's, uh, amongst others, the FIA's fault. Uh, a completely muffed introduction for uh, the, 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 uh, the details we've now got of the new rule sets. Uh, that was very messy. Uh, the press release landing in Europe overnight after, I think, furious attempts to actually get an agreement together, but then I gather perhaps potentially even issuing the wrong draft. It did cause some confusion. I've attempted to clarify some of the major questions here um, with a short piece on Daily Sports Car we posted at the end of this week on Friday evening. And I'm also hoping, I've got to promise that, we will have a, an opportunity for a special for Inside the Sports Car Paddock uh, with the uh, ACO Sporting Director, Vincent Beaumanil, the man who is responsible for putting together the rule book. And I will be putting some of those questions to him. It does not mean a privateer cannot build their own car. It does mean that a privateer must seek an alliance of some description with a, a manufacturer it is therefore you're quite right although that's not quite the way you voiced it absolutely no difference to the rule set that exists for dpi could that be helpful in bringing things together i'd like to think it could be helpful i think the the driving factor here though is what they're looking to do is to draw in as many manufacturers as they possibly can and that will be for um, TV, recognition, communications, but no, in no small part, commercial reasons. Um, so no different, really, um, to what actually currently exists in, uh, in IMSA with the DPI formula in terms of the, the rule sets and the way that that's done. I will agree, though, with the number of listeners and readers, for that matter, uh, that we've had messages from MP that this was not the smoothest of releases to that information. <laughs> <laughs> uh we we're gonna we try to make this a, a family friendly show but we definitely need to use a hashtag no shit goodwin um i mean come on man um, it was messy it was messy it, it took us some time that that said are you familiar you with the american expression uh, monkey effing a football um that that <laughs> that's the image that comes to mind in terms of this it's, communication I, I, I would suggest to you that there's real frustration from uh, the World Endurance Championship and the ACO that, of course, the, the problem is, and it's not the first time this has happened. I'll, I will remind you in a moment of the last time that the uh, royal mess was made with an FIA communique, um, is that they are beholden 
So the communique that comes to the World Motorsport Council because of an FI World Championship for first release of that information. The problem here was it took so long to get that out. We're in a position where there was literally nobody available to respond to questions from even the people that are up at that ungodly hour on this side of the pond, which, uh, which by the way, did include Stephen Kilby. Well done, young man. Um, but the Beyond that, there were certainly others that chose to interpret and guess. That caused a real level of confusion and irritation uh, with, well, the industry, the fan base, I'm I'm sure the organisers as well. Um, That is, though, their job to get this right. Uh, I think we're now at a stage where we do understand more about what is being intended by those regulations. I think we'll get further clarity. I have zero doubt we'll be uh, corralled into a room and briefed until we agree to stop being briefed um, in Bahrain because it clearly is important they get some positivity into this debate. Uh, It is not. A lot of the kind of questions I've had privately on this one simply don't appear to be based around truth, and that's because... The information that came out just simply wasn't comprehensive enough and it wasn't clear enough. Um, there, there was definitely some, some aspects of lost in translation there. The good thing is, is despite any issues in explaining things, these cars are not going to be on track for three more years, right? So there's plenty of time for rules to be released nah. for everything. No? Nah. Am I on? Nah. Did I misread no. that part as well? No, Am no, I sure, off? Maybe, yeah. <laughs> I think you're being a little cheeky. Sorry. Um, so clearly, so, so what we what we're looking at is the first iteration of the hypercars, the first uh, uh, programs, and that will be the Toyota, uh, the GR Supersport, the Aston Martin Valkyrie, the uh, what we believe to be Multimatic built uh, race cars. Uh, they will be starting racing September of next year. So that is what, 10 months ago, uh, 10 months to go before they hit the track in anger for the first time. None of those cars, um, with one possible exception, um, and I think you've got uh, a, a catch up call with the man behind that program pretty soon. None of those cars are going to be seen testing in public or indeed in private until after the Le Mans 24 hours next year. That is a tiny, tiny window of opportunity for those hypercars to get out there and be uh, track tested before being thrown into competition. That leads to a further possibility, doesn't it? Just um, what pluses might there be for anybody that chooses to bring a grandfathered LMP1 because those uh, existing non-hybrid cars will certainly be grandfathered at least for one year, and my guess is possibly for two, and it's a guess, but possibly for two, that what you will have there is, albeit rather neutered, uh, those cars will be as quick, but potentially rather more reliable. So you've just covered off Tom Bender's question by and large. Got a number of submissions here regarding the name of what this class has become. Many are lamenting the fact that the name we came up with here on the weekend sports cars, car car instead of hypercar, was not chosen. It's Do, a big mess. Yes, and we're we're filing lawsuits left and right to try and make this happen, but uh, they're all being filed and finished just to really confuse the French. Um, Why don't we jump into some of the lingering questions about, I guess, stemming from all the confusion from the announcements, again, knowing that you can head to dailysportscar.com and read Graham's 
uh, one little information one on one, one on one, one on something. I don't know. I'm drunk. I need to cut this. Should I keep this? Again? We'll keep Again? this in. Again, I love how you suggest that it stopped. Uh, let's go to Josh Ridgen, who says, what will the FIA and ACO class as an OEM? Will Glickenhaus, Baikalis, or even Janetta be allowed to compete in Car Car? So do we have a definitive answer on what qualifies in the eyes of the sanctioning body as an original equipment manufacturer, as an auto brand? I think the the answer is uh, no, we don't. But uh, what it does have is the same catch-all that tends to feature in just about every one of these sorts of regulations, which is that there will be a judgment made by the insurance committee. In other words, they'll make their own decisions on what's good for them, good for the championship. So in terms of the three that uh, Josh mentions, Glickenhaus, my understanding is Glickenhaus are now a registered manufacturer uh, in the United States. Now, whether or not that's on a federal or a state level, don't really know, don't really think that matters. We also know, uh, because we've seen the uh, the original renders of the car and there's been a little bit of kind of conversation in the background, that there's an OEM engine deal in prospect. Whether or not there's any badging attached to that could be a critical factor. I don't expect Lickenhouse will have any problem whatsoever. Ginetta, uh, Ginetta, I can tell you, are talking to a number of parties about the potential for a hypercar program. There's no plans to announce yet and are looking to make their current cars available to customers for next season's um, FI World Endurance Championship rather than coming back as Team LNT that they'll be available to customers. Um, my guess is, again, they are likely to be seen as an, uh, a manufacturer. By Collis, now the update there is that that car is due to be unveiled at the Le Mans 24 Hours 2020 at some point during race week. Uh, There are very, very few details available about that car, whether or not they've got any kind of badging deal, whether or not they've got any kind of OEM engine deal, we simply don't know. So therefore, neither do we know whether or not they would fall foul of the rules. Um, You would like to think that they, and for that matter, the ACO, are aware of more details than perhaps we are, and that they, because they've pretty early announcers uh, to join the the hypercar party, would be party to any discussions uh, that bring in that uh, proviso. I don't think this is quite as big a surprise, by the way, as most people tend to think uh, that it is. And and again, I'll just reference the fact there's there's barely a dot or a comma difference in the rule set that we're applying here to the top class of the WEC that exists in the top class of IMSA. So the one thing, Graham, that I will be interested to see is how the ACO and FIA decide to adhere to this, quote, mandate. If I think of a Glickenhaus, as you mentioned, Jim has made cars. They have engines in the back. They make the cars go forward. That has not been an element of Glickenhaus's promotions, really anything. So while we know which auto brands lump, uh, has been the basis of power plants and making their cars go forward. That hasn't been what Jim's been about. It's been about the Glickenhaus name and brand. We make cars, we sell them, regardless of what is making it go forward. That's not the promotional point. We are aware that a well-known, legendary automotive brand will be a part of their hypercar efforts. Great, fantastic. Be curious to see how that conversation goes, though, because while naming that brand, I'm sure would not be a bad thing if the ACO and FIA require Glickenhaus to actually use that automotive brand 
as the foundation, the keystone of the vehicle's name of what they do, uh, that, again, could be problematic. It's a lot different than, say, a Toyota. Well, they've come in as a manufacturer. They make engines. Granted, this is named after a person, (laughs) obviously, but we know that they make everything of their own and therefore promote it as such. With Glickenhaus, we know that they make the chassis. They don't make the engines. But what they sell is not based around a marketing campaign of who they got to supply the engine. And so, anyway, so it'll be interesting to see how this is applied or isn't applied in hypercar. I think think they'll be fine. I think the other thing to say is I'm not aware that the regulations specify that the car brand is a road car brand there's no i don't think it specifies that it's not a race car brand uh i think it simply says car brand that's what i believe the regulation says i think there's plenty of room for maneuver for the insurance committee should they decide to go in that direction and i think we've got to take this this point of view here no matter what's been flung around and i'm not you know there's plenty of us flinging stuff around this week no matter what's been uh flung around uh, the reality is, if something comes forward that is of value and of quality, they're not going to turn it away, are they? No, well, I don't believe so, but we need to leave open the possibility of silliness. Let's see. We do have a bit of a limited window to record today, so I'm going to need to skip past a few that I really like. As always, if you sent in a question and we did not get to it, do not hesitate to resubmit for consideration in the next episode. Go to a guy in a grumpy bear suit, a.k.a. at Dare Ruslar, who says, honest question, do the ACO employ actual human translators, or do they just feed everything through a French to English setting in Google Translate? It seems like, with each clarification issues, the rules for car car become less and less clear. I just got to throw that in because <laughs> humor and it's, asshattery it's, is part of what we do here. Um, I, I will add, can, I, can I just add a real a quick a factual point here it is very funny and it's not altogether not altogether uh, ill-targeted but there is actually a regulation that says in the case of any confusion that the french original regulation is the one that you defer to so even if we're confused by a translation it is the original french uh, regulation that actually uh, is the is the core document if you like and that's that is written within the regs itself Let's go to our pal Justin on Twitter, J underscore Troc underscore 71. A big if, but if we have a title fight going between Toyota and Rebellion when we get to the final round of the current WEC season at Le Mans, isn't it a bad look for the WEC that success handicap won't be applied? Le Mans will be decided before they even start. Seems silly to have world championship deciding race take place under different rules than the rest of the championship. For those who don't know all the background, maybe you could explain that a bit, Graham, but also get to the point of, hmm, yes, different ways of regulating cars throughout a championship. uh, Okay, so what we've got this year is not balance of performance and it's not equivalent to technology. It's not meant to make the car's performance equal. Quite the opposite, in fact. Effectively, it handicaps the cars that have been successful. It makes it more difficult next time and more difficult again if they continue to get that success. So it stops that escalation of success through the year is the theory. So what we're going to have in 
uh, in Bahrain is the two Toyotas with their maximum possible uh, uh, success handicaps applied. To give you an idea, it's about 45% less hybrid boost than they would normally have and a chunk more weight as well, 30 plus kilos. Because, obviously, Rebellion won last time out, they'll take a hit. So uh, if you're a betting person, I'd be down to your local betting office, um, quick sticks, and put a fiver on Janetta being on pole uh, in uh, Bahrain because that's quite likely to happen because they will be relatively unencumbered. We've then got, though, of course, eight hours of racing and half of that into the dark. That's the longest race the Genettas will have had so far. There are lots of other variables that might well give uh, something other than what might appear to be obvious results. Uh, so success handicap is there effectively to keep the, ro- the race more open. EOT, to my mind, absolute unmitigated failure last year it certainly was not equivalence of anything um politics came into it from uh, the very early uh, days and from there on in it seemed to me like there was a rowing back on it at uh, increasingly frenetic speed by the time we got to the end of the season um absolutely take your point justin about the le mans 24 hours bit i do think it would be wrong to have the cars coming in uh you know, encumbered as they currently are. Uh, But equally, I take your point that it's an odd message to give. Uh, Let's wait and see what happens with the Toyotas. Um, You know what? I'd like to see those cars running unencumbered for one last time because you know what? They're an astonishing achievement in automotive technology. And on this occasion, it's as simple as this. As the conversation I had with Colleen Boudre, Boudre at, uh, in Paris this weekend, whatever else was going on in terms of success handicap, to win it the way you did, you had to run perfectly. They did. They won. To win at Le Mans with the, uh, the performance that you've got now from the Rebellions and the Ginettas, the, the Toyotas will have to run perfectly, both of them, or at least one of them. It's not something they've managed terribly often uh, in the past. Uh, Yes, they've done so at Le Mans in recent years, but at some point that streak of fortune has got to break. So let's not write the history of the race before it happens. The race doesn't like you doing that, does it? I believe we've also used, is it the first or the second hashtag let's wait and see usage? Let's wait and see. That's that's my first, I think. Okay. And again, we we only limit ourselves to three per episode, so... Ooh, just I think you're going to be okay this time around. I think we're going to be all right. Uh, we're going to go to, we're going to get through a couple of more on the WEC, Asm Elms, ACO. Uh, Richard Cooper says, do you have any info on which manufacturers are knocking at the door of Baikalis to be associated with their program? And there's no smiley face at the end of this, so I don't know if this is just truly uh, the most snide and hilarious comment of the episode or if Richard is indeed being serious. Well, having seen an awful lot of fun and games at Bicolis Expense on Twitter and on Facebook, suggesting various fire engine brands that might actually want to sign up with them, um, I think the answer is, you know, I'm sure they're fully well aware of the, the need to do that. Let's not forget, by the way, the name of the class. It's Le Mans Hypercar. And as uh, someone actually pointed out to me, right now, there are only two hypercar manufacturers, in other words, 
car manufacturers that actually pedal hypercars onto the market that have stepped up and said, yes, we'll do it. And those two are Aston Martin and Glickenhaus. Uh, there are plenty others that might actually be up for a remarkably cheap branding deal because that might well be all it requires uh, for this to happen. So we're going to have to see what comes out of uh, what from underneath the um, the sheets when it's uh, actually unveiled at the Le Mans 24 hours in June, if Colin Collis and his merry band stick to that timetable, um, just to find out what and whether. The, my, my guess is by the time this actually broadcasts, someone is going to manage to get him on the end of a phone and he'll either tell you that's actually screwed the pooch or they're already prepared for it. We'll have to wait and see. <laughs> Hopefully not dangling from the end of a phone cord. Uh, let's go to Neil Hardy. Now that Rebellion have teamed up with Peugeot, who do you think Areca might team up with to build and brand a Le Mans hypercar? I think well, that- let's not. Yeah, let's not presume that they're not exactly. involved with Peugeot. Yes, because bear in mind this is quite a way away before we see this this car. Uh, the what it indicates to me is one of two or three things: either they've got a separate program, possible. Um, or indeed um, that they had a parting of the ways with Rebellion. I think we'll know that within 10 seconds of landing uh, in Bahrain. Or indeed that that basically those discussions are underway and they've not yet been completed. It's a very much more simple discussion to have with a brand like Rebellion Racing, effectively the sponsor behind that effort, uh, than it is with a technical partner such as Orica. Uh, that can wait. So don't presume yet. I come from a position of zero knowledge as to whether or not they are in line for a role as a principal contractor on this uh, effort. But uh, I come from that. that they, I've certainly not uh, had an answer to a question from Orica. Uh, neither am I expecting an announcement imminently. But there's plenty of time for that to emerge. So one of three things is going to happen. Orica will have a, another program in mind. Uh, Orica won't be in hypercar or Orica will find a role with the Persia Rebellion program. My strong suspicion is it's the latter. Don't mind the typing here. I'm just adding a new hashtag to our list. This is just too good to ignore. So last week, we created the hashtag Lawrence Van Tour sex robot hashtag. Yeah, that's that's gone, that's gone wild. That. That's... And uh, this week we're adding, I'm coming from a position of zero knowledge on this. That might be <laughs> the most delightful turn of phrase I've heard in quite some time. Should I mention, because I like making t-shirts that don't sell very well but amuse me, uh, I am working on an official MP podcast hashtag t-shirt. Uh, that folks could, in theory, purchase. And of the items, how many do I have on here? Uh, 10, maybe 12. Of course, we lead off with the official hashtag of all that we do. Hashtag me personally. We've got hashtag front nose. The one that might need to be a standalone T-shirt, and it might not just be a hashtag. I don't know. I'm, I don't know how we draw, how we have it drawn, because that would be a concern. Uh, hashtag B-O-Penis. Uh, is one there hashtag let's wait and see of course hashtag breaking exclusive scoop um we have hashtag car car that's another one uh you know hashtag front splitter anyways we're we're the list is building for those of you who've listened for the couple years that we've done this if there are any that i've forgotten send me a note we will certainly look to include it and you can be one of three people to buy the shirt and uh 
help me lose money. Uh, Graham Goodwin, we're going to take two more in your world of whack and whatnot. Daniel Summers Gill says, how do you think Yen Magnuson will get on with a high-class racing LMP2 car in the Bahrain test? How different will it be from driving the Corvette? It's a shame that it won't be possible to partner with his son at Le Mans due to the clash with F1. Uh well, I will admit to having known about this for quite some time, uh, and I'm delighted it's come to fruition. I know the team behind High Class have been working very hard to make it happen. It is part of Jan's wish to come back to the Le Mans 24 Hours. I know absolutely he wants to race uh, at Le Mans alongside Kevin at some point, and that, that will be quite something to see. Might bring back a sizable portion of the Danish fan base that we've lost since Tom Christensen uh, actually uh, packed it in. But uh, I think he'll be fine. In it. It's been a while since he's been in an LMP car. Uh, most recently, he's been uh, out in Daytona prototype um, competition at Daytona. But the last time he was in a Parker LMP car was 2005 in the Spa 1000 kilometers uh, in the Lister Storm LMP. Before that, an Audi R8, the team Go Audi at Le Mans. And before that, of course, his days with Panos. Uh, but delight to see him back. I think we're going to see Jan Magnussen's smile, uh, smiling broadly, uh, because it's a, a nice place to go testing as well, uh, the Sakia cir- circuits in Bahrain. It'll be relatively few cars on track, wide open spaces, and an Orica Gibson is a joyful thing. We're going to close with a request for comment. This coming from our friend Mateus Longo says, I'd love to know your perception about the cancellation of the six hours of Sao Paulo from your perspective as a non-Brazilian hashtag me personally as a Brazilian. I feel just ashamed that such things keep happening year on and year off. Please use the tools provided by the much beloved Bushu's hammer emporium and don't spare words on the soapbox. Um, I'll kick it off. Uh, it was not ultimately a surprise that the decision was taken to pull it. They've been very clear that this was a failing on the part of not the circuit, not the city, but the promoter uh, failing to fulfill some primary obligations under their contracts. They've taken the decision that was therefore not tenable. The surprise, of course, was that the date shifted to. I had a little bit of notice that that might be the case. But, of course, the, there is a problem in that it, it does actually clash with another ACO rules race, that being the Asian Le Mans series um, season closer in Thailand. Uh, I have, by the way, seen the questions directed at me um, as to what my intentions are. I'm going to keep my powder dry on that one for just a few days longer as to what's going to happen in terms of uh, where I'll be uh, on that particular date. But Kota it is for a two-day meeting. Um, so you can guarantee that that will be FIWC only at Cota. Uh, it will be a midday race start um, for the six hours of the Lone Star Le Mans, uh, which means finishing at 6 p.m. in Austin. Um, it's just a damn shame. You know, anything that actually interferes with a long published calendar is a shame. First thing to say is the frustration and the disappointment with the team that is responsible for 
for putting on the FIWC was palpable. And I had those conversations with a couple of people in Paris on Monday evening. Uh, they didn't particularly want to discuss in very much detail, but the disappointment was palpable. It's clearly a huge amount uh, more uh, effort from that team and for that matter their customers the teams uh, and no small amount of money lost for a lot of those teams as well thousands and thousands of euro in lost uh, airfares and i hope not hotel rooms but i suspect in some cases there might be there is one plus which is the freighting costs to uh, texas are somewhat less than they are uh, down to sao paulo so there's at least there's uh, there's a little bit of uh, glitter on the poo um but we'll we'll just, yeah, I just hope this kind of thing does not happen again. Uh, does this mean it becomes more difficult to uh, envisage the WEC going back to Brazil, Mateus? I think it probably does. Um, it was not a happy uh, time for the championship with the previous promoter. Uh, and pretty clearly, this one appears to have uh, not performed to an optimum level, shall we say, uh, this summer round either. So uh, we'll find out, by the way, uh, next weekend in, in uh, Bahrain what's going to happen for season nine's calendar. That's something that's coming our way uh, this coming weekend uh, in Bahrain. But uh, my strong suspicion is you are not going to see Brazil on that list. It's Once, time for him, isn't it? It is, but I just want to ask a quick follow-up first time questioner first time listener uh do we think graham this reveals possible struggle in terms of what the fiwc needs financially to turn up and play do we think this might reveal the fact that unless it is something that is very serious and institutional meaning they've been doing it for a long time with an organization that's known a promoter a circuit whatever it might be that well-established, well-funded, etc. Do you think this might be a bit of an insight that standard means, regular, I guess non-super wealthy or otherwise, a promoter that is not just sitting on piles of money, you think this might reveal the fact that it's getting a little bit too expensive to get this series to turn up at your preferred international destination and play? Or do you think this is just a case of a bad promoter uh, either not being good enough in the beginning or just not getting their stuff together and therefore this falling through. It's difficult to avoid the conclusion that at the very least, in part, the issue is commercial. Now, whether or not that's purely commercial, whether or not that is the inability to pull together promotion or security or whatever else it is, we simply do not know. But it's difficult to get away from the impression that, it, that, that commercial aspects of this, at least in part, are at the core of what's gone wrong. Um, does that mean that it's too expensive? Well, the reality is it's part of an eight-race world championship and there's not been a problem anywhere else uh, with this. And to be blunt, no one's put their arm up the back, forcing them to be a promoter. So if you've signed a contract to say, I will provide these services and this financial uh, package, and you've not provided that, uh, then you potentially put that uh, contract at risk. And, and, you know, I, without knowing the details, MP, 
I'm certainly not in a, in a position right now where I'm prepared to turn around and criticise the WC for this. If a contract has been signed and it says A, B and C will be provided, whether or not A and B are both commercial and C is something else, the reality is that contract has not been fulfilled. And I guess what spurred that thought was we're leaving a place that didn't work out to go to a place, well... The place we out. were going to is a place we've been before but had to leave because it yeah. didn't work out. Now we've tried to go back and it didn't work out. So our solution, having lost Brazil, is to go to a place where we went to and it didn't work out. But now we're going there hoping it works out. Maybe it's just a one-off well, going to Coda. Again, I realize it's having to scramble to find a solution. But I just look sure. at Coda as well and say, hey, I was there for all those. And I loved it. But I wish there were more than a 1,000 people or whatever the number yeah. was. The Lone Star I, don't, I don't disagree for a single single second. I think to, on, the, on the wider points, there is a reality. It is an FIA-sanctioned world championship that does come with um, a financial implication for anybody promoting and hosting one of those races. And, you know, that is a whole different ballgame. It's going to be interesting to see, by the way, whether or not that has an impact on the latest FIA world championship, that being Formula E where, um, well, let's let's see just how financially viable that stays over the next two, three, five years, with or without the manufacturers that are currently, you know, their staple diets. Uh, I think that it, I'm sure people with better information than either you or I would have sat around a large table with plenty of coffee and possibly biscuits, I think quite possibly biscuits, um, will have had that discussion my guess is that the gap between what was promised and what was provided was pretty substantial. Uh, I don't think we're talking here about someone being 10% short on financial commitments. I think we're talking here about uh, key parts of that contract simply not being fulfilled at all. Ooh, yikes. Well, are we done wecking ourselves? Have we wecked off enough I'm, here, my friend? I, I'm certainly whacked out. Tell us where we're going. Obviously, it's IMSA. Obviously, Obviously. it's IMSA. We come, Ooh. we come jetting over to your side of the pond and the International Motorsports Association's uh, Tech Sports Car Championship. And we're going to kick it off with a couple of questions from Nate Detweiler. First one is around the current DPI rule set. Now, this comes from a couple of fine pieces you've uh, been uh, putting on to Racer com of late uh, MP and Nate says with the manufacturers backpedaling from hybrid power teams not wanting to buy a new or modify a current chassis what's the point of DPI 1.5 or DPI 2.0 surely keeping the current rule set would be cheaper than teams having to buy even just a new body kit for the current chassis what say you all true Nate keep in mind that the team's buying angle is where things get complicated. This is a manufacturer's class. We do have two official factory efforts, that being from Mazda Team Yoast, what we will be referring to probably uh, informally as Mazda Team Multimatic, and then also Acura Team Penske. On the Cadillac racing front, there are no quote air quote factory teams but if you think Action Express Racing and Wayne Taylor Racing are not connected, then, well, you're a silly billy. So 
there are indeed manufacturer ties to all three programs. Uh, I'm sorry, all three efforts. There are some customer sales that we do know to some other teams by Cadillac. We know Mazda is hoping to get a third car, its first works affiliated, but non-factory effort out sometime next year. Don't know if that will happen or not. The issue here, though, Nate, is not so much the cost to teams, but the value to those manufacturers. And whether DPI does or does not go hybrid in 2022, we'll have to hashtag wait and see. I think that's just one, right? Because I said it, not you. So that's not a one of the three. Anyways. Um, uh, it counts. It counts. I'm, I'm, I'm going to just, just, just going to write, write that down okay good good i love it i love it uh the issue here nate really is coming down to what value is being presented to those manufacturers to stay for the three that are in and to entice those who are not but the series hopes will come and play so while i can't tell you if they are going to either can and just ditch the hybrid solution altogether or whether they will make it optional and then try and do some form of BOP, hashtag BOPness, which I hope not. The bodywork is going to be the main area that I know manufacturers are saying, hey, this was cool, what you came up with and allowed us to do in version 1.0 that debuted in 2017. But for this next step, we need more latitude. We need more freedom to do things that makes this look I don't want to say more like a road car because that's still going to be darn near impossible unless you design a prototype from the outset like you're allowed to do in hypercar to look darn near like a road car, if not really make one that is truly both prototype racing and road sales minded, knowing that they're probably going to be working from the same chassis solution. I'm leaning towards a belief, Nate, that we will have a carryover of the chassis. I think the bodywork is going to be the main area. And that expense, while it will be something for the teams that buy their cars from the manufacturers, that's what the manufacturers are saying. Let us go that extra step. It could as well. And I believe we might have a question about this as uh, in the line here coming up, Graham. We're not sure what GT Le Mans is going to look like a couple years down the road. We're not sure how healthy that class is going to be. And therefore, does IMSA need to think more and more about making DPI a place where, yes, it is not the true production-based GTLM car, but we can get the shape of this prototype through rules, permissions, to get closer to a silhouette-ish shape, something extreme and exciting. We've had that before but allow that to happen if, by chance, GTLM here, I guess GTE being the counterpart in the in WEC, if that happens to fall through here in North America. So I think there could be some interesting future-minded decisions to make here as well that might just go beyond cost in hybrid, but if GTLM is going to sink and possibly go away in GT3, ends up being the formula that survives might not be a bad idea to give manufacturers an option to play in DPI and have a better opportunity to link what folks see racing on the track to something that evokes 
memories, if not real direct links to what they see for sale on the showroom floor. Well, Nate, uh, follows up on a great opening question about DPI with one about GTD. Uh, he says, unless he's missed an announcement, uh, will there be any participation in the class from Audi? I know you said the customer racing support had been lacking, but it would be a real shame not to have a single R8 on the grid in 2020. Have no hard information for you here. Yeah, I have no solid intel for you, Nate, unfortunately. But knowing that there were a couple of Audi R8 entries that came in on a part-time basis last year, I would expect to see that continue. I would expect to see one or more at the Rolex 24. As for a full season, though, that's an area where I just simply don't. No, I guess I need to. Uh, <laughs> I need to employ my favorite new hashtag. I'm coming from a position of zero knowledge on this, Nate. So, would think maybe part time, maybe big races. Who knows? Maybe even the uh, the Sprint Cup for GTD. But at this moment, I have zero knowledge on this position from a full time standpoint. Righty. Uh, there are various staples involved in the, the weekend sports cars. Uh, one of them is uh, right turn lover. And he comes with a question about uh, the recent BOP bronze offering performance. News of Colin doing Daytona only with Dragon Speed mean that he's out for the rest of the MC season. Could he theoretical, theoretically be full season pro in LMP2 after that? And any Jeff news? Jeff and I need to catch up. We've been texting. I think we said happy Thanksgiving to one another right around Thanksgiving. Good timing there. I do need to ring my favorite silver-haired race engineer. We just haven't caught up in a while. We also need to record something new for Inside the Sports Car Paddock, which I've been promising to put up the last episode and I'm continuing to fail. Spoke with Colin as well. Didn't have much he could speak about, but did say that there was some news coming down soon. Uh, not the Dragon Speed item, but uh, hopefully some other things he can speak about. Not exactly sure where we're going to see him full-time. World Challenge seems like it could be a place where he does a significant amount of driving next season. But, yeah, the <laughs> one of the fun things is... is when you have old family friends like this, you'd think that they would be big sources of news. The reality is uh, it, that relationship might get complicated if you didn't wall off those kind of things and forget mingling friendship with give me the hot scoop on where you're driving and what you're doing because that doesn't really work so well all the time. So wish I had more, but I don't. Do need to catch up with Jeff, though, and maybe he will give me the uh, little secret wink or nod or hand gesture that doesn't involve middle finger on where I might at least expect to look for him in the paddock, which region of the paddock I might find him next year. Uh, another regular um, from our good friend, SRA smoking, smoking puppy eight for one. I really need to know what that, that, uh, that, that Twitter handle actually means by the way. Uh, how likely do you think it's that G is that GTLM gets replaced by a GTD pro class in the coming seasons? NIMSA he hopes it doesn't happen, but as of now, uh, he can't see GTLM. He, it might be a she, uh, it. can't see GTLM. So it's, uh, surviving. 
What say you, MP? Same concern here. I believe that might be the default direction that they have to go. There's one auto manufacturer I know of that is seriously contemplating getting into GTLM. If that does not happen, I fear that, yes, indeed, we will be looking at a American Le Mans series-like situation where GT1 went away, Corvette Racing had to redevelop its C6R from GT1 to GT2 specifications, and frankly, it just contracted that series, I'm sorry, that class just contracted down to zero, basically, after one manufacturer was left. There were no real serious or consistent privateers turning up in GT1, so IMSA's dual GT class became a single GT2 effort. That is a place where factories played, which is fun, also had a very strong privateer element. Then, because they needed the cars, they added in the, I'm forgetting the name of it, but the spec Porsche class, GTC, maybe? whatever. Yeah. Uh, So just to get the numbers back up, we'll have to see where this heads, but I don't know if multiple years of six cars playing in GTLM is something that those manufacturers would consider sustainable. IMSA will do their best to keep it alive. I know that if we were to get someone to come in and replace Ford, that'd be, I mean, not only would it be fantastic, I think that would ease all fears, but at three manufacturers in the rare appearance of a fourth with the Risi Competizione Ferrari, that's not something you can really build around as a great success. And another aspect that we mention frequently here in the show, you also have to think about the optics. IMSA wanting to present itself as on the rise, improving in every metric possible. Can't do that when you have four classes and two of them have six or fewer cars in them, which is what will happen for talking full season in 2020 with both LMP2 in GTLM. Moving on, Jacob Boehm uh, from Facebook uh, goes to the opposite end of uh, from Big Bang of GTs to people engaged in a lively debate, he says, about DPI 2.0. Do we go hybrid? Do we not? Meanwhile, Scott Atherton, he says, announced a full EV sports prototype series back in the summer during the State of the Union speech. It's been quiet since then. Were there any developments around this series that are worth mentioning, or is it just too soon to expect anything but a vague idea being floated? Completely forgotten about it, Jacob, until you mentioned it. Have heard nothing about it since. So, pretty easy answer on that one. I would also add, knowing the financial constraints, IMSA is under brand new financial constraints, all due to parent company NASCAR buying back all the shares needed to recapture its ISC company, International Speedway Corporation, uh, their business where they own many of the motor racing circuits that uh, they compete on. I believe they compete on all the circuits that they own just about, but knowing that the France family had to come out of pocket massively, take on a huge amount of debt in order to buy back ISC, this is the thing that is going to dictate all that happens with IMSA for quite some time and every NASCAR property 
there is such debt that has been taken on that funny money, the fun stuff. Hey, we're going to spend more on this. We're going to do something new here. We're going to grow this. We're Here's lots of big ambitious ideas and the money behind it to make it happen. I believe those days are going to be gone for a while, if not altogether, which leads IMSA within the family of NASCAR things that are owned, since IMSA is the thing we talk about here. If IMSA wants to do something like introduce a new hybrid class, do whatever, they're probably going to have to find sponsorship to support those things. You could say, well, what if they encourage manufacturers to come in? Great, that would help cover some things, but not all things. So from the technical oversight, from the safety aspect, just the bodies needed to facilitate such a thing, it's not there. So I would say we're going to be in for some lean years. And if you do see, and we do see Graham and end up writing about, oh, brand new company X has signed on with IMSA. Keep in mind, it's probably not just a fun, interesting new marketing relationship that's been developed. It's probably something that has been explored and signed to help IMSA pay for what they currently do. And if there's enough left over, maybe do something brand new. But by and large, IMSA is going to be in a pretty significant budget deficit and or budget watch for any and all things. So this is something where it sounded interesting. I just have no idea how it gets paid for in light of the reacquisition of ISC, taking it from what had been a publicly traded company to now back in private hands of the France family. And every aspect, everything that NASCAR owns is feeling the financial crunch as a result. Uh, let's move on to, uh, have we had a mention of BOP until this point? No, I, I don't. Well, other than just mentioning BO hashtag BO penis. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it does strike me by the way that, that whereas this used to utterly dominate, didn't it? uh, the weekend sports cars, it does tend now to be kind of fairly peripheral, although predictably usually comes up under the IMSA tag, which is, you know, as we've said before, not where we started with, uh, with BOP, but motorsport Matty from Twitter says, why is it that BOP is constantly changing so hard to get right? Understands it might take some adjustments, adjustment to fit a new car into a right performance spot. But in DPI, for example, MSR has data on all the cars for at least two full seasons. Are cars regularly having such significant development that far into their life, the BOP constantly needs changing? I think we need to know. It is, Motorsport Matty. You, the questions you're raising and the surprise that you are expressing comes from the basic tenet and foundation of what BOP is. It constantly moves and adjusts because it's absolutely necessary. There's no way to have a fixed BOP and then see that BOP equalize or semi-equalize cars across every round. If we're talking about the year-to-year development, absolutely. Teams are testing, since you mentioned DPI. Every manufacturer has been out with their cars, testing and trying new things. Whether it is on the damping front, whether it is motor improvements, right? The motors are not 
spec. Motors can be improved. So whether it's heightened torque, power, just delivery, fuel economy, there's so many things that can change even within a, quote, homologated race car from year to year on top of all just the efficiencies that are found. Uh Aha, here's a new lubricant. Here's a new something that we found that we like better. Hey, we had this shutter open. We're going to close that off a little bit within the car or whatever it might be. So many little detail items that can add up to a couple tenths of a second. A couple tenths of a second over a 6-hour, 12-hour, 24-hour race, it's just murderous. And so in a BOP construct where you try and balance and equalize everybody, there are absolutely things that get done from year to year to improve. Think about in some instances where the teams, a team maybe, let's just say one manufacturer has had a squad of drivers, and they've been good, but they've made changes to their driver rotation. And so from year to year, faster drivers are in the car, or if not faster, more consistent, less error prone. All of a sudden, the benchmark lap time across a stint is improved. Maybe the vehicle itself has not changed one iota, but because you have modified the drivers. Maybe you've got a new race engineer who can find more from the car than their predecessor. And all of a sudden, it's going faster. Maybe, again, just say no changes to the vehicle whatsoever during the off-season. So many variables here to consider. One other main one to offer as well, each of these cars in DPI, very different from one another. Small, 2-liter, 4-cylinder turbo in the Mazda, 3.5-liter twin-turbo V6 in the Acura, 5.5-liter non-turbo V8 in the Cadillac. Although IMSA has done many things to try and equalize the cars across the different tracks, when they go to Long Beach, which has one very long straight and a lot of very somewhat narrow, tight, slow corners as well, the acceleration characteristics, very different between the three cars. Naturally, you go to a place like Road America, which feels like it's just one giant, amazing turn and straight all at the same time. Huge speeds, huge commitment. Cornering numbers are insane. Not a surprise that the turbos have tended to be really strong. They don't run out of air. They don't struggle to breathe at high RPM and high speeds like a naturally aspirated engine happens to do. All these little things where from track to track, BOP is affecting cars in a different way and or those cars are in, I guess I might just say, overcoming, almost defeating BOP if we're just talking about across three different brands and how they're affected. So those are the basics, whether it's the car developments, whether it's the drivers, whether it's the engineers, could be tools. What simulation tools are being used across the manufacturers? What kind of driver-in-the-loop simulator is being used? Is one better than the other? Are they coming away with better correlation between what they do in sim or a simulator and how it affects the car and its performance on track. All these things are constantly moving. And so the need to constantly adjust BOP, that's what it's there for, that's what it does. 
it's just a constant cat and mouse game, Graham. <laughs> and it's so frustrating because it appears to be a process that defies excellence. The people in charge of such things at various sanctioning bodies, some have better success rates than others of achieving BOPness from the various classes where it is used. And there's also that factor as well. So if you take the cars always changing, there's usually evolution in the teams, the tools they use. And then you also factor in that every championship tends to have varying levels of skilled people in charge of BOP regulations. Again, it's just, it's nothing but variables. It seems to me that we're always going to be talking about this being an issue for that very reason. Too many variables to get right at a, what would you say, an acceptable percentage? 98% accuracy? I mean, it seems like sometimes we're talking 50 or 60% accuracy. So it just seems like it's a flawed thing, frankly, that I don't know if it's ever going to improve to a level where we never have a reason to talk about it, or almost never. Um, Did I put on. you to sleep? I put you to sleep. No, no. I, 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 uh, I'll be blunt. I muted my uh, my talk button because I've got a squeaky chair. Listen. And uh, we may, st- we may still mine? get interrupted I'm, I'm by... I'm squeaking here too. Absolutely. Uh, just uh, conscious we may get interrupted as well by Oscar the Husky, who's uh, fairly vocal and needs a walk at some point in the next hour. We did bark uh, last week, didn't we? Uh, no, he doesn't bark. No, doesn't we. Bark. Didn't I bark? I thought we, I was... We bark. No, you did. Let's see if we can get Oscar yeah, howling. If you get him howling, if that's a change to Oscar and you did it, I'll find you. <laughs> Nathan Barnes from Facebook says, given the brouhaha, I do like that word brouhaha, of a budget snibser, you've been given the helm to redo the class lineup in the big show. You must retain the current relative play- pace between the classes and pro- pro-am nature of the prototype and GT classes. But otherwise, you can shape the future to reduce budgets. Hashtag me personally. I think something like LMP3 based DPI 2.1 Pro, LMP3 Pro-Am, GT2 Pro, uh, it's a distant screaming herd from SRO offices. It says here, GT4 Pro-Am could cut the running cost a little for teams. Curious to hear your serious comedic responses. Do you want to first crack at that? Uh, sure, Nathan. Thank you, first of all. I hate to be the guy saying the same thing over and over again because I just used it in an answer a couple minutes ago, but if this is purely a Pro-Am series, sure, man. Offer whatever you think is going to be best, whatever is going to be in the the best health to grow numbers and make it super sustainable. If we're talking about a series like IMSA, though, that courts manufacturers full pro manufacturer entries in two of its four classes, you're going to have a hard time getting those manufacturers to sign up for the slowest possible prototypes. Uh, there's a reason no one's clamoring to get into LMP3. There's a reason it's a spec class. It's tr- a training class. So thinking that we could get manufacturers to sign up for the training class to be the new DPI, of course it would save money if we adhered to the training class level of thinking. It's just not something any manufacturer would want to do. And I would also just suggest that 
if IMSA said, the heck with it, manufacturers kiss our behind. We're going pure pro-am, and we're going to make this new DPI 2.1 a LMP3-based class. I'm very positive. Tons of cars would be sold. It'd be a huge grid, and no one would give a fart. Uh, I just don't. There's just, yeah. There's also the, it's, not a prototype. it's not like I have seen this and others have seen this example before. Hey, let's dumb things down and just make things cheap. And you go, cool. You got big numbers. And for the people who competed, who owned teams, they loved it because they could get in. They could be a part of it. It's what happened with the old, the, the original indie racing league formula, the alternate to the cart IndyCar series. I I mean, having been there, having been someone working for an Indy Lights team that was able to graduate to, air quotes, IndyCar in the Indy Racing League, we were able to do that. It was great, good on us, and I'm thankful that I have the experience from doing it. But it was only possible because the cars were so dumb, low-tech, and cheap that we could get in. And that era is not remembered fondly. Uh, It struggled to put people in the grandstands. And the entries came and went, and the quality of the show went down. Uh, the driver quality was also way, way down. And uh, I nothing against seeing how we can reduce the costs, but, yeah, putting out shit boxes not the way to do it. Uh, either to put fans uh, in the grandstands or just to generate anything meaningful that uh, would be for TV ratings, sponsorship-wise. It has not proven to be the way forward. Now, I do like the uh, LMP3 Pro-Am model. Do we rotate that in somehow? Uh, if LMP2 does not get beyond its four or five full season entries, I don't know. I, mean, I think some playing is going to have to go on here, knowing that we mentioned we don't know if GTLM has a long life ahead of it. Does IMSA just drop down to three classes, DPI, P2, and GTD? Does LMP3 get a place at the uh, WeatherTech Championship table? I don't know. Uh, GT2 Pro sounds like fun. And yes, uh, anything to make the SRO office scream, that'd be fun too. Um, I don't know, man. Uh, Cutting costs for the little teams, it needs to be an ongoing consideration. I just don't know how you mingle that into the big pro racing series that IMSA has to offer. Let's move on to Matt Niederts. Uh Is it just Matt? Quite possibly is. Or has it taken longer than normal for IMSA teams and drivers to get their plans sorted for the coming season? The Raw is less than a month away. Plenty of teams have yet to announce their plans and drivers. Is this unusual? Are there yet more surprises ahead? What can you share? Back to the conversation on money. So <laughs> IMSA is not the only... Uh, quote, member of the paddock to be suffering budgetary shortfalls. There are a number of teams, in particular those who rely on folks to pay or sponsors to pay for their participation. It's thin, thin times, and it's just, it is a reality. I think we spoke about this last week, Graham, maybe the week before, I don't honestly recall, but IMSA as a whole, serious there's going to have to be a financial reckoning that takes place, whether it is my suggestion of, all right, DPI, 10 rounds, maybe that becomes eight, GTLM, we're going to take one or two off. They've already done that with P2, GTD, 
I know that they've come up with this sprint cup thing, the non-endurance rounds, but maybe they need to carve one or two rounds off of that as well. I'd feel bad for those who go to the races that might get cut out if they truly aren't able to travel to another one. We're just looking at something, honestly, Matt, where in so many instances at a growing rate, the people who are trying to find folks with money and the ability to drive a race car, that pool seems to be getting smaller. I'm not saying they're less of those folks, but those that want to come do it in IMSA seem to be shrinking. Sponsors coming in, still a hard argument to make. TV numbers are up in IMSA's first full season on NBC with NBC Sports. Still not a number you can put in front of most sponsors and say, NC, that's why you should give me $5 million or $2 million or 3 or whatever it is. It's a hard sell. So when you don't have the proven metrics to put in front of a potential advertiser and you don't have enough funded people walking around trying to play, It's tough. And the underlying point, though, is money. If the dollar amount was less to compete in everything but P2, P2 is really a big bargain right now because it's a a relatively small calendar. If the number was lower, Matt, there'd be a lot more people walking around looking to spend money to drive. And I also think that there'd be more sponsors involved. So tough, man. Uh, Nate Detweiler from Facebook uh, says, what happened to the early December test at Daytona? He knows it wasn't an official test. Hasn't heard anything about it this year. I've heard nothing as well. And if it's happening, then yet again, I need to employ my (laughs) new favorite hashtag. I'm coming from a position of zero knowledge on this. I think we should go for that one. Yep. That's, that, I think we push on. Uh, Mark Urban, uh, and again with testing from Facebook, he says, with the Rolex 24 test looming, are you able to give us a rundown of the confirmed teams that be competing, uh, especially in LMP2 and GTD? Hearing lots of rumours, believe a few folks are really taking some liberties with possible teams and driver lineups. Love your work, gents. Thanks. There's a fair number of people still up in the air, aren't there, for uh, deals this season? Yeah, I think P2 is probably the easiest one to lay out with performance tech pr1 matheson dragon speed and ear motorsports which has a link to dragon speed as well beyond that yep. graham are we missing anyone or have we not uh, you're missing, that we haven't you're, announced yet you're missing the rick Ware racing ah, effort yes I hope will be there um with their car what we don't know yet of course is whether or not pr1 will be one or two cars Yeah, there's been a lot of talk, a lot of effort to be two cars. Haven't spoken about the ones that have fallen through, but I am long overdue to catch up with Bobby Ergel, the team principal there. He and I were actually having a great conversation about it, but he was testing at the Buttonwillow circuit, and he was on the headset apparently trying to coach the driver, and I was unaware that he had gone from speaking to me with his phone up to one ear to speaking to the driver through the microphone and listening with his other ear. And so we're having this conversation, and all of a sudden he says, okay, clutch in, clutch it." Now, it's okay, it's okay, car looks fine, car looks fine, clutch in. Okay, now we'll wait, wait, for, the, uh, wait for the emergency truck to get there. And I'm sitting here going, 
<laughs> wow, this is fun. Turns out the guy had spun uh, the P- P2 car and uh, maybe wasn't doing too good of a job there. But anyways, um, we need to catch up but and the, finish but, that conversation. But there is one more to come in LMP2, one more to be confirmed in LMP2. Awesome. awesome. Uh, hashtag let's wait and see on the GTD no, front. Hashtag- Hashtag, hashtag let's uh, wait and see when, not if now. Oh, that's a totally different hashtag. All right. Uh, Mark, on GTDs, again, uh, I wish I could say that I was up to date on every little thing. I am not. Uh, I know of one announcement that's coming out on Monday with a team uh, that, and actually, thanks for the question because it just reminded me I need to write that uh, embargoed piece and get that ready. Uh, what else? Shank second. Acura is one that we're waiting to hear confirmed in terms of the drivers. Micah said it's going to be there. Don't think it's a total secret that Misha Goikberg, who's been with the JDC team in LMP2 and DPI, is expected to be in that second shank entry. Not sure if that will indeed end up being reality, but that's something that's been in motion for quite a while. So look forward to, frankly, Mark, and I'm not trying to use an excuse here, but knowing that for the past while, I have not been able to do my normal job of really being on the phone, being in contact and staying on top of every little thing. This is an area in GTD in particular, where while I've heard some things uh, that no one else has, I think I've been in general behind the curve and just need to raise my hand and apologize. Where should we go next, brother? Well, the first thing you do is not apologize, uh, quite, quite, quite frankly. I think we move on and get into Hair Gallery Island a bit of fun because it's Friday night. Friday night is two things in the Goodwin household. It's ladies' it's night, pizza. as Cool McGain said. Well, the, the lady's out tonight, so it's pizza night and it's husky night, and he will be wanting to walk. What, so, um, what kind of pizza does Oliver like? Uh, Oscar, Oscar, uh, don't, don't call him Oliver, or he'll be round your house and he'll do unspeakable he'll, things. In he'll your jarve me up if if I'm not careful. Yes, he, uh, he's he's done unspeakable things in my garden. I can tell you that for for starters. <laughs> um, not he's not allowed pizza, but I am. So there you go. And even if I'm not, Trudy's not here anyway to stop me. So there you go. Um, so John Wojnar from Facebook says, "Will Transam ever regain popularity?" Uh, loves the show, started listening because of your IndyCar show. Uh, he says, you guys are the best podcast covering road racing. I think we should put that on a T-shirt. It's a common theme here. His question is... I love it when our listeners a- lie to us, by the way. Thank you, John. You're the best, man. <laughs> uh, do you think the Trump's on series will ever regain the popularity it once had in the 70s all the way back to the early 90s where it wasn't uncommon to see the results on the sports page and on TV next to Indian NASCAR results? Fun series, unfortunately, with not that much exposure. Even tried finding an early Francis Junior T-shirt to buy. Couldn't find any merchandise to place or buy anything for Trans Am series. Um, I'm looking forward to catching up with... Um, Championship runner-up Chris Dyson this weekend. Uh, he'll be in the FIWC making his debut in the in the Ginetta. But uh, be good to take his views on this one. What say you, MP? Yeah, John, you're spot on. This should. It is and continues to be my favorite, best-kept secret sports car racing championship. It should regain 
its stature of popularity and importance in the United States. The only thing missing, I would say, is manufacturer involvement. It's going to need the same kind of Ford versus Chevy, Dodge being in there. We obviously had Audi back in the day, Porsche wasn't there necessarily as a factory factory thing, but there was a Porsche angle as well. We're going to need some manufacturers to get involved to just elevate it simply to elevate awareness of the series. Older folks like myself uh, and, and others, you know it, you've seen it, you've loved it. You know what it was before it's again, amazing in its various iteration uh, iterations, whether it was the, original production based to the true tube frame silhouette crazy that's what it is today in the top classes there's also the production based element as well it's just freaking the best <laughs> we're talking 850 horsepower V8 tube frame silhouette cars in the shape of Camaros, Mustangs, other things as well that we've seen in you know the last however many years. It's phenomenal. And where it wins beyond the really high-quality racing and competition that takes place on the circuit, it wins from a budgetary standpoint. To go and do a season of Trans Am, and they don't have a ton of races. I think it's about 10. And their part, it's owned now and run by Tony Perella, who owns the SVRA, the Vintage Racing Organization, which is also just a pretty amazing thing. This is something where you hear the budget to do a full season, provided you obviously have a car and you have the equipment. But once you have the assets, we're talking a couple hundred thousand dollars, two hundred, three hundred thousand dollars to go and do a full season. You can spend more, of course. But it's ridiculous how little it costs to be in these amazing high power, uh, slick tire shod, just missiles. They sound amazing, look amazing, put on a great show. We have composite bodywork, which is important because you can rub fenders and you're not doing structural frame damage to the thing. You either tape it up or bolt on a new one quickly and easily different from again, most production based racing. It is special. It is very special. It does have a TV deal and believe they continue to be on CBS sports network here. I think you can find them online at gotransam.com, something along those lines. Believe our friend Shay Adam uh, I don't know if she still does, but uh, she's been one of their pit reporters. This is just a pretty amazing thing. And so I do believe, Graham, without, as you love to say, a shadow of a doubt, this is a series that with the right commercial editions, if they can find a, a corporate sponsor or two that could help with serious nationwide advertising, really trying to appeal to racing fans, but potential drivers, you name it. It's not expensive to do this. If we have something that can elevate awareness about Trans Am, get a manufacturer or two in there wanting to play, even if it's just a branding exercise, this series could and should threaten 
not only World Challenge and what the SRO is doing here in the U.S., I think it could absolutely rival IMSA for its popularity. Just is going to take a restoration of its awareness. If you see these cars in person, I am confident you will walk away going, all right, that's kind of the best thing <laughs> ever. Uh, LMP1 <laughs> hybrids, right? I mean, that, that's, and I'm no joke, LMP, LMP1 hybrids, the only things I can think of in terms of modern sports cars that just leave me breathless. And there's only one left with the Toyota, obviously. It's been dialed back a bit, but just in terms of peak fun and amazing, and holy crap, they let them do this? That's what Trans Am is, and I'm so happy that it's here. I really do hope, as you mentioned, John, this is something that more folks know about, maybe. Drawing back to the budget crunch stuff we were talking about with IMSA, and maybe some of the bizarre directions that the SRO is taking with World Challenge that seems to just be diluting its popularity and awareness year by year. Being able to go play, being able to go spectate and enjoy uh, for very little money as a fan, but I would say more importantly as a driver or as a team, team owner, it, this thing is just waiting to knock some championships down a couple of pegs and really become a huge, huge thing. Maybe, maybe IndyCar, since IMSA still appears to want to be its own standalone thing at almost every round, be the headliner, maybe IndyCar should look into embracing Trans Am as its regular touring uh, sports car act at its events. They do get together once or twice a year, but I'm talking about if this if they're going to make this thing big, if they were a part of IndyCar's package, Graham, uh, going from, you know, obviously not the ovals, but road and street courses, I think we would see some IndyCar team owners start to say, huh, maybe, we, maybe we need to have one of these teams. So maybe <laughs> that's the link. But awareness is the only thing holding it back, John, I think, from scaring the poop out of some other domestic series here. Uh, let's see. Let me throw one to you from our pal, Michael Metropolis. So okay. Graham with the WEC LMP2 tire announcement. Why are tire wars becoming a thing of the past? I've always liked the competition they offer. Says I can understand why oval racing series don't have them, but I don't see why sports car racing is largely free of tire wars these days. So you might get folks up to speed on that P2 announcement first. I will. It's uh, basically, it's a further expansion of what we know is uh, going to be the direction for the ACO series which is single tyre for uh, single tyre manufacturer for LMP2 now confirmed as part of the package to effectively slow the class down a little something like uh, 40 brake horsepower less for the Gibson V8 engines um, for the next season of the FI World Endurance Championship and in 2021 for the LMS um, but yes single tyre manufacturer know that Michelin and Goodyear are still in the hunt for that. If you were asking me to guess, I would guess that it will go to Goodyear. Um, but, yeah, um, why? It tends to be uh, two things that come into play. You'll hear uh, manufacture, You'll hear series talking about 
uh, a better way to balance that performance or to reduce budgets. But there is a reality is there is a commercial gain for a championship with either a partnership, uh, whether or not that's a marketing partnership, whether or not that is a technical partnership with a single tyre supplier for uh, for their their uh, their top classes. So it, it, I wouldn't... <laughs> We're now down to very, very few places on the planet where in top class endurance racing, there is a really open tyre battle. Uh, and I'm thinking now about Super GT. I'm thinking now about VLN and the Nürburgring 24 hours, but just about everything else. And yes, uh, GTLM. Um, and I suspect that uh, if there's enough cars to play, that there'll be an open tyre um, battle in GTE Pro in the WEC as well but it's becoming a bit of a dying breed and I like you mourn its loss Michael speaks to a greater issue that's been going on in recent decades in motor racing as the specification of things the homologationization of things becomes the norm and that is seemingly championship by championship and this is NASCAR, IndyCar, it's not limited to just sports cars. Rules are written as such where you are giving the automotive industry and the major sectors that supply the automotive industry, in this case tire vendors, no reason or ability to engage with the sport, or at least in the championship that might interest them. If, again, a significant tire brand wanted to race an IMSA or many other championships. They cannot. We know that GTLM is the one exception, but what if they wanted to be in prototype? What if they wanted to be in NASCAR's whatever championship? What if they wanted to be competing at the Indy 500? Simply can't. So not a surprise that in so many ways, whether it's auto brands or those that supply the auto brands, don't look to racing as much as he used to. So, yeah, it, Michael, certainly something that weighs on my graying and balding head uh, more often than it should. Uh, let's go to Jacob Bame. Let me throw one of his questions at you. Mm. What did you enjoy the most about sports car racing in 2020? And what improvements would you like to see in 2020? And I said 2020 instead of 2019, because <laughs> therefore Jacob would be asking you to tell the future. So why don't we just take the first part of that question, Graham? What did you enjoy most about sports car racing this past season? Um, I've thoroughly enjoyed covering the European Le Mans series, and for that matter, the Asia Le Mans series. I think both series have been have taken big steps forward in the last couple of years, LMS in particular, and for that matter as well, the Michelin Le Mans Cup in its mixed-class GTE LMP3 era has been uh, a bit of a buzz as well. I will admit that I've not been that turned on by IMSA in 2019, to be honest with you. Um, it's been okay. I've, th- I've actually quite enjoyed the Michelin Pilot Challenge, um, aside from some of the asshattery that goes on in terms of driver standards. Uh, WEC has had its ups and its downs, but consistently for me, 
uh, the LMS has been very good. Also British GT. And it's a, it's another moment to reiterate a point we've made before on the weekend sports cars MP, which is all of those series I've just mentioned, not one single one of them has got the same class structure, not one. And there is something about that class structure with in British GT terms, GT3 and GT4 cars on track together. Not something you see in very many series, by the way. You do see it in the big long distance races around the Nürburgring. You see it in Kravontik with other classes involved as well. Uh, but not something you see in very many other series. Um, there's something about the, the spread of the classes, the depth of those classes that comes together to create something uh, special. If you put me on the spot, I'd say ELMS uh, in 2019 uh, entertained me thoroughly every weekend that we were there and to look forward to every single one of them. What about yourself, MP? Hmm. Struggling here a little bit. I read that question when it first came in, and it's a great one, Jacob, but I'm struggling a little bit with, to come up with something that I haven't already mentioned. Maybe I just should mention one of those things again. I love the fact that the little FAF Motorsports team that moved over from World Challenge to IMSA's GTD category had race wins in success first year out. It just made me feel really happy to see a hearty little group of folks come over and show that, you know, you don't have to be in a, quote, IMSA team. You don't have to be someone who's been in the category and formula for many years, moving from sprint racing to endurance racing to figure it out and do very well at it. So that made me happy. Probably Dane Cameron's championship as well. The fact that he's won three titles now in IMSA since 20, what is it, 14? I think that's remarkable. One in GTD, another in the predecessor to DPI, that being IMSA's, quote, prototype class, but in a Daytona prototype old Corvette tube frame thing. And now uh, with the manufacturer, a uh, full-bore manufacturer with Acura. Just really happy for him, and I believe his success, probably the least heralded or least acknowledged among modern sports car drivers here in the U.S. I mean, we spend so much time celebrating, as we should, Bill Arberlin winning his 8 millionth race and doing crazy things and so many legends and heroes. I love when we see Graham, a young driver. I'm not even sure if he's in his prime, but a young driver like this who, in a relatively short span, has captured three championships in the same organization in three different classes. So I would say that his title with Juan Montoya, Montoya, that was also a bit of fun, knowing that that just demonstrated how much fire is in that round little belly of his that was pretty fun to see as well but yeah uh really happy for dane yeah, yeah you, well, you know what in a similar vein but not quite as significant a vein uh but for a completely different reason i just want to say um the words bruno and senna uh so mm. bruno uh, at uh, shanghai completing the set um of uh wins in every wec class uh, since its inception. Uh, Bruno's had his challenges over the last couple of years, had some health problems the last couple of years, and has not had the smile that we've been used to seeing on the Brazilian, but it was a delight to see him at his best uh, at Shanghai and driving 
out of his skin. Absolutely brilliant drive from him with the rebellion. And that uh, was just one of those moments on a human level. It was just a delight to see. There we go. Let's uh, let's see. Where should we go? As we do need to start ramping down as you have pizza to eat. And uh, not Oliver, but Oscar to to hopefully (laughs) toss something, you know, little scraps of that to him. Yeah. Where should we go? And again, if we don't get to your question and you really want it handled, please send it in. There's one here I can answer very quickly. It's from another one for Motorsport Matty. Do GT3 Series share BOP data? And asks, uh, is it because there's so many races, so many different tracks, et cetera, et cetera. Um, the, if you like, the center of excellence for this is undoubtedly SRO, uh, where effectively you can buy into their BOP uh, process. There are others that do their own thing. But a very large proportion of the principal GT3-based um, series around the world uh, do tie into uh, SRO's balanced performance system. Uh, it should be said that that does have uh, sparkly good results for the most part. Um, so, yes, they do, but it tends to be based on the commercial aspects of applying their own system. ACO have their own system. IMSA have their own system. Uh, a fair number of the remaining gt3 series whether or not sro run them or not do effectively subscribe to the sro gt3 balance performance system i'm gonna grab just a couple more i'm gonna fire this one off to you then i'm gonna hit mute run take a leak so i don't wet myself and come back and hopefully no one will notice excellent did i just say that i did or you go to mike hogg who says evening gents with the fi aco once again instantly shooting itself in both feet half dozen times their latest hypercar ramblings it made me wonder <laughs> when do you both recall a series actually announcing a set of rules that not only had promise but was well implemented and went ahead as intended i'm hitting the <laughs> button off you go you, you know you know that's not gonna it's, it's gonna take longer than it's gonna take you to go for a leak my friend um well what have we had um well the lmp3 uh regulations started as a little bit of a whisper uh, but went on to be something that has formed a bit of a a base plate for uh, LMP racing and mixed class sports car racing uh, not just across Europe but now of course in Asia and indeed in North America we've had those questions earlier that referenced the potential for the new cars to be stepping forward into the limelight a little bit more and with the increased performance parameters of the new generation of LMP3s, which we'll get in Europe uh, from next season and in the United States from, I'm guessing, the season after, then that has the potential to kind of move forward. It's got to be said, you've got to go a long way to not mention GT3 in this regard. Now, uh, from the very earliest moments of that, I recall back in the day at the Le Mans 24 Hours with a mysterious... Um, then very road car looking uh, Aston Martin being unveiled at that point without a rule set or a uh, series or a class even to mark against it. That became uh, the DPRS9. Um, and that became Aston Martin's first offering in the soon to become GT3 class. That was remarkably quick. Um, and that just launched something special. I vividly remember walking down the pit lane 
at Silverstone for the very first GT3 race. And I think I'm right, it was 51 uh, brand new GT3 cars in one pit lane, the very first FIA GT3 round. Um, and it was quite remarkable to see not just the numbers, but the spread of makes that were involved at that stage, including one or two that didn't make the cut. Maserati um, didn't go much further than season one with their first offering. But uh, most of the uh, the manufacturers that formed the the vanguard for GT3 still with us. Uh, I think you'd have to go. It's not necessarily quite an answer to the question. It wasn't just a series, but as a rule set, GT3, LMP3, and for that matter, after a bit of a cough and a splutter, now GT4, uh, you've got to say, have done a pretty darn good job of providing uh, platforms and opportunities for a remarkable uh, explosion in the number of races and series that we now get to see on a national, continental, and for that matter, global level. Much better. Um, <laughs> I will say, we just mentioned it as a total crap box, but I would say the Grand Am Daytona prototype formula. It was announced as what it is. It was what it was. And it survived quite some time. It lasted longer than any single prototype formula that I can recall. I think you're right. You know, yeah. it's, it's, it lasted for a decade, 2003, the first year, and that those cars remember in effectively Gen Three um, survived through and into the then remember this choose United Sports Car Championship 2014, 16, right? 2016, 16. right? The the combined uh, 16. Yeah, remember so they had th- the big old diffusers years. and downforce and, and carbon. Yeah. yeah so what? Yeah, I mean, it lasted a good long time. And again, maybe I'm off by year. Maybe there's another um, class that launched and stayed and was what it was. We could probably say LMP1, knowing that, granted, it did start out as LMP900. Uh, I mean, there's been some variation there. But I would just say if I look at if I look at modern things, I would say that would be it. Honestly, the DPs yep. were underwhelming to begin and met all of their expectations. So uh, where should we go next? Why don't I, Jordan Hopwood, you sent in a fun one. Maybe uh, send it in again next week. Uh, Alex Eichmiller, you asked this question, and I thought about it, and it really intrigued me as well. If you could choose one race to run the track in the opposite direction, what would it be? This is hashtag me personally. I would love to see Laguna Seca get run in reverse and watch cars go up the corkscrew. That's the one that fascinated me, man. That event would need to be run, uh, not only run, but sponsored by Borg and Beck or Luke, some sort of clutch manufacturer, because (laughs) the smell of burned out clutches, the the amount of cars, they would actually need to build a parking lot uh, at the corkscrew, because I don't know how many would make it all the way up and over more than once. Uh, that's brutal. And it's a gr- well, what, great question and, and track suggestion. Well, I'm pretty certain I'm right. I'm sure listeners will correct me if I'm wrong. It's before my time. 
but I think one of my favourite tracks, Brands Hatch, has actually been run in the opposite direction uh, back in the past. I can certainly tell you that in the days when uh, the uh, sections of the, the modern Spa-Francorchamps circuit were still public roads, including, yes, a rouge, uh, the cars would run uh, on the public road down a rouge, uh, Radion, um, on the public road. But, uh, <sighs> blimey, it's a, it's a good one, isn't it? Oddly enough, I, the, the one that came to mind was for a not dissimilar reason why Laguna Seca was mentioned, and that's Cota. I think uh, actually seeing cars coming down the hill there onto that main uh, pit straight would be quite an exciting uh, moment. But uh, maybe too many open spaces, wide open spaces to make that quite the spectacle it otherwise might be. But uh, you know what? I would like to see Brands Hatch run in the opposite direction again at some point. I think if we're going the Laguna Seca route, Alex, I would say Bathurst. Oh, good call. That I mean, granted, I think the cutting possibly uh, might be another need for a parking lot for destroyed cars to be parked. <laughs> um, you know, just how's this? Maybe instead of a clutch sponsor, which we would need for Laguna backwards, we would need some sort of crane rental company as a sponsor for the backwards Bathurst 1000 uh, or or 12 hour or whatever we choose to run there because it would just be lifting yeah, granted. Now, that would be a true race of endurance. Can you make it to the finish? I'll save this for another time. Uh, I've mentioned this before. I continue to mourn the fact, Graham, that endurance races are just misnamed. They're, they're incorrectly named. These days, cars are so reliable the rules are written in such a way to wear lasting whatever amount of hours, 6, 10, 12, 24. The vehicles are so capable of lasting and getting to the finish. We get surprised when a car blows an engine, breaks a gearbox, some sort of terminal failure, not a crash, but actual does the vehicle have what it needs to contest the full duration of the race and have a shot at winning if it can i miss those days and that was a very general thing to say of the many things i'd love to see happen in the future could be in whatever championship that does endurance racing a rule set where it was not just a foregone conclusion that all the cars in gte am or pro or lmp2 or hypercar Make it to the finish. We expect hypercar, in particular, to be something where there are a number of smoldering heaps that don't make it to uh, the halfway point of the 24 hours of Le Mans due to it being a brand new formula. But still, it's one of the things I miss, right? The, the concept of enduring, that being the challenge, that being one of the draws. Can you measure up to this amazing challenge put in front of you auto manufacturer, team drivers, you name it. I do lament the fact that, by and large, it's a completely forgotten component. It just, we want to see close, hard racing for 24 hours. Okay, I'm not saying that's bad, but I do miss the considerations that had to be made. Can we push as hard the entire time? Do we need to take certain things into account, not overstress the engine or the brakes or the other things? 
making it to the finish is the challenge. Um, I don't know. Part of me that misses that. Love to see if uh, a championship somewhere could write the rules where it made it hard, much harder for teams to get to the end of a race, and they had to actually work hard to achieve that. Am I crazy? Uh, you are completely crazy, but that's not Good. important, right? All right. We've confirmed what we already know. Where should we go um, I, for a last question or two? I'm going to go to Chris Ward, uh, the best of the grandam DP cars. That's not a phrase you <laughs> often hear. Boston uh, Graham, the question is a bit off kilter, just a bit. Uh, the old DPs of grandam have been called shitboxes by some. That's outrageous. That said, which car won the Polished Turd Award? Me personally, hashtag me personally, he's always enjoyed the Crone Lola. What say you two? Thanks for all you do, guys. P.S. Marshall, get your hands, he says, on a Goose Island Bourbon County Stout, if possible. Thank me later. Good man. Um, do you want a first crack at this? I've got, I've got a short list for this one. I would say uh, the easy ones, you could say PKO, right? I mean, that just looked like a clown car that... How did it get? The Fab car. Holy, mo- holy yeah, moly. That the Delara. Oh. The Delara was brutal. Oh, the- it was the Serrano de Bergerac. Of, um, <laughs> it was just awful. The Lola? Uh, can I mention one? The Lola was kind of chunky. I'll, I'll, I'll tell you a story about the Lola. I was actually uh, visiting... Uh, Lola cars back uh, at the point where that thing was coming together and was given actually a really early look at that car on the CAD screen. And, it, you know, it, it, it kind of hung together pretty well, which is not something you could save very many of the Gen 1 um, uh, DPs did, with a couple of exceptions. I, I, I did quite like the look at the Crawford um, yep. in... It's early, you know, a, a well-prepared Crawford uh, was actually not an unattractive car. And for that matter, the Doran wasn't awful either. Um, the Fab car was horrid. Um, the Piccio was a joke. There's one, though, there's that one always that's intrigued my, me. Yeah, there's one that – you go with yours, and my, my I have one pick that, yeah, it, it still just defies Earth. It, the Chase. Oh, Okay. Now, the Chase, if you're not familiar with the Chase, was a Daytona prototype tube frame chassis, but with Mosler bodywork. Um, look it up. It did uh, race, um, not often and not well, but uh, it did race. But actually, because the Mosler's not an unattractive, this is the MT900 Mosler, by the way, uh, the one um, that uh, Warren Mosler collaborated with Martin Short in the UK, and to no little success in GT racing um, in the UK. The Mosler also raced in uh, Grand Am Racing as well. But uh, the chase, I always quite liked that concept. And, you know, when you saw the car in the kind of fiberglass and metal, um, not unattractive. But then again, neither was the base car. So uh, not a surprise. Go on, what were you going to mention? Well, I was contacted by the, I don't remember who, Fred Chase or whatever, whomever it was, was contacted by Chase back in the day to inquire about engineering that car and wow yeah well it speaks to the level of talent i have and who was reaching out to inquire about its use uh didn't happen though did get to engineer a riley though for uh for a half season for a team in 2005 that entered the uh, canned ham dp category the one all-time standout donkey 
among DPs, Chris. I mean, and it it it's shocking to me knowing the quality this organization possesses and all they are known for creating. The Multimatic MDP1 oh. it it's the only Daytona prototype that as my eyes view it is a complete Frankenstein of a creation. There is not a flowing line that connects nope. from the back to the front to the side to the middle. Nothing looks like it fits. Not saying things don't fit, but this looks like someone was able to get into the, not the chassis manufacturing side of the shop, but it looks like someone was able to sneak break in who knows into every dp manufacturer's spares building and take <laughs> parts and it just looks like a conglomeration of oh well that's a little lola uh delara ish oh well that's a little fab car ish uh, that's a little riley ish now granted this thing was built before many of those not all but me, you know many of these things existed I just look at it and go, holy crap. Uh, either I'm looking at a picture of it now, and I'm having to squint is the honest answer. Here's the point. Wasn't that thing supposed to have Ford-focused styling? Yes. So this was a, a quote, just, works no. kind of thing. Yes. And so that is the thing that blows me away. And I really, truly, Larry Holt and I have been meaning to do a podcast here, and trust me, this is going to be one of the items, and he's going to curse at me many times. There are going to be some Canadian mutton chops flapping in the breeze as curse words are hurled in my direction. This is just such a bizarre creation, Chris, because it it has no identifiable style. It where I am joking when I say it looks like they got parts from four or five different DPs and slapped them all together, and that's why nothing really looks like it fits, both from a coach work standpoint, like, wow, that looks, that's a big gap, or that's hung oddly, and none, just nothing front to back looks like it was ever meant to talk to one another. The other thing, too, which is, again, maybe just a little bit strange looking at this car, is for all the ways that it was meant to perform and compete, it wasn't a success. It didn't really go anywhere, do anything, but it didn't die immediately. It it hung around for a little bit, had some different colors, did some different things. Yeah. But it, it still, it just can, it's this weird thing. The, maybe the other option is if it wasn't a Frankenstein car built from the remnants of three or four other DPs, the other thing that stands out is maybe it had four different designers because it does kind of look like, oh, this person's, I mean, you look at the front of the car and you go, oh, but you look at the back, you look at the, the engine cover and the fender bulges and this, that, and you go, oh, that's actually a little bit flowing, flowing, but that doesn't connect to the front. You look at the doors, the doors on the thing. I, I've always looked at and said, huh? What is that? That 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 doesn't that's bizarre. Anyways, that's the other option here is maybe it just was passed someone got thirty percent through the front of the car and said, I quit and they got a new guy and said, 
Well, I don't know what that guy was thinking, but I don't have time to redo it, so we're keeping that. And he did 20%. He got to the 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 firewall, the cockpit firewall, and said, screw you, I'm out of here. And they got another, all right, I'll get the engine. And again, it's just this, yeah, it's bizarre. So again, I know there's some others that are kind of higher profile missteps in, in DP history that get named first, but I always look at that and say, knowing the quality of this company, it just stands out as this total outlier how the hell did you do that so that might be my opening well, question for larry been, what, must have been one hell of a party that produced that one it's got to be said it does look has the look of something that's been crashed stylishly doesn't it really uh, the only ford part discernible part of uh, ford styling on that car is the ford badge on the side which is upside but, down no just kidding no, that would be funny <laughs> but but it does have of course the historic position of being the first ever DP class winner uh, at any race. And of course, that was the Rolex 24 hours, albeit off the overall podium, uh, because uh, that uh, first race, of course, uh, annoyingly for everybody involved in Grand Am, was won by the racers Kevin Buckler, Turg, and, the racers uh, group. <laughs> With, with, I have to tell you, a Delhi sports car sticker in the back window. Really? Uh, Did they know you had placed it there? They did, and it's still on the car. Wow. There you go. Uh, that's a great question. Thoroughly enjoyed that one. Um, Why don't I throw the last one at you? I'm gonna, And this go is going to go to one of the staples of our show, one of the pillars of the community here on the Weekend Sports Cars. Right turn lover, final question. It's all yours. It's one of my favorites of the week. He says, how long until the SRO can pick up the now unused LMP1 moniker? To introduce a class slower than LMP2, but faster than <laughs> LMP3. <laughs> oh, dear, oh, dear. Um, you're a cheeky monkey, is what I'm going to say there. Um, well, let's put it this way. I sincerely hope from uh, the ACO's point of view that they have indeed copyrighted that and trademarked the LMP stuff. The fact that it stands for Le Mans prototype, I suspect that might make for an interesting court case. Uh, I wouldn't put it past them. That's the kind of thing that I would do just for a laugh is the honest answer. Uh, that's the best way, I think, to finish uh, this evening, MP. Thank you so much, everybody, for such a, uh, a range of questions and what's, what's been, if not a momentous week, that's certainly a very busy week in the world of endurance racing. I'm looking forward to, I'm not looking forward to getting on a plane, looking forward to being back in Bahrain with our good friends at the Sakir International Circuit. It was great to see Sheikh Salman um, at the uh, the FI Hall of Fame in Paris on Monday. Um, by then, we'll have I think some more news to tell you on a range of things, but by the time you and I uh, stand or sit and talk again, MP, we'll also be talking about the calendar for next season's FIA World Endurance Championship and perhaps more things to announce besides. There's uh, other news kind of kicking around and waiting. Until then... Uh, take uh, a look at uh, what we put online as by way of explanation of what's going on with the LM, uh, the Le Mans Hi- hypercar uh, class. I hope uh, before we get to the uh, Bahrain circuit, we'll also have online at least half an hour with Vincent Beaumanil from the ACO uh, to talk through some of the nuances of that rule set. And I'll thank him for giving that time on his um, very well-deserved weekend. And, and hopefully too, MP, you're going to have a chance to get a little bit of rest and recuperation before the rigors of the following week. Looking forward to it. 
clock will uh, be rolling over here in my little world uh, from the number 48 to 49 over the weekend. We'll be posting this on Monday, so birthday will be in the past. But yes, I'm going to treat myself on Saturday, December 7th, the day that lives in infamy, by doing absolutely nothing. Probably I'm going to end up doing some podcasts and working that stuff up. But regardless, look forward to speaking to you all next week. Thank you, Mr. Goodwin. And thank you to Cooper Tires. Looking forward to year number three. And also the Justice Brothers for all of your support in making this little show possible.